Thank you for listening to Zero Brightness. If you'd like to support us directly, you can go to patreon.com slash zero brightness. You can also find and interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Discord. All the relevant links are at zerobrightness.com. We'll see you out there. in an era of constant overstimulation. Initially, it may have seemed that this endless stream of content, information, and media was made and or curated by ourselves, but now we have social media platforms to do it for us. If we so choose, we can live our lives on an endless loop of flashing images and incredibly loud and grating sounds. Now that's not necessarily a new or even modern idea. People have been able to do that in one way or another for many years now. What is new and what is modern is the idea of it being a mainstream, socially acceptable, and even completely normal way to live. I remember when TikTok came out a few years ago, it really seemed like some weird dystopian scheme to like brainwash people with an endlessly scrolling feed of images and sound but now it's just kind of the way we live our lives it's just a thing that we do and i've noticed recently that even like when i go out people are generally looking at this stuff with their phone volume on full blast It's really odd, not only because, well, yeah, it's like rude and weird and intrusive. I don't think there's any way of getting around that. Like, why should I have to hear like some dude's TikTok when I'm at the laundromat? But it's also kind of fascinating to me because it makes me realize that this isn't necessarily a new idea. Like, I was at a restaurant the other day and some dude was looking at TikTok like super fucking loud. And my ear kind of zeroed in on it. And I was like, damn, that dude really is just like blasting fucking TikTok off his phone and scrolling with all the loud sounds and the flashing lights. And it's like super weird. But then I realized that also there was like a TV going and there were people talking really loud and all this stuff. And I realized that, you know, maybe overstimulation is just a part of like living in an urban area or living around other people like a certain level of overstimulation or saturation is normal and it's to be expected but what kind of freaks me out is the thought that people never ever escape from that that like you're never just by yourself or you're never just in silence I think that the thing that's starting to freak me out is I'm realizing that a lot of people, self-included, and maybe you listening too, don't ever just slow down. Like, you're constantly always taking in all of this information, trying to process it, but to be realistic, probably unable to. And I don't know, just do something with it. 
I don't think it's a stretch or even a radical idea to say that I don't think people were meant to live like this. I think that it's kind of eroding our mental health and our ability to communicate with one another. And I mean, you know, in some ways, just kind of like destroying our society. And so I think that, you know, it's going to become more important than ever to find ways to slow down, to detox, to not be around this shit, to not look at this shit. For me, I've been kind of thinking about, well, what did I used to do like 10 years ago? You know, how did I structure my day? What was my media consumption like? How did I balance, you know, being in public social settings with being in private settings where I could just relax and chill out? And I think that, you know, a lot of the answers are really, really obvious. I mean, in terms of media consumption, it's like not looking at social media, obviously, not looking at my phone as much, obviously, but it's also like choosing to partake in things that I guess for lack of a better term would be considered long form content, like watching movies and playing single player video games. I think those have been two things that I've kind of latched on to lately, especially movies, but I don't know. We're not really here to talk about that. So I guess it would be pertinent to talk about video games. Yeah, because this is the start of, uh, I don't know, season four or something like that of Zero Brightness. Hello, welcome. Uh, And there's going to be an update on what's going on with the show and what you can expect this season at the end of the episode. So stick around for that. But first, as always, video games. So in thinking about how our modern media consumption habits have just become one disgusting, endless binge, I was thinking about how works of media themselves have changed to match these habits. And I think it's really interesting. It's interesting because there isn't like one simple thing that you can point to, right? Because like even if you want to say, oh, songs are getting shorter, like two minutes and under because people don't have good, you know, attention span. You can also point to the fact that the overall lengths of albums have actually ballooned and become gigantic because it's also like an easy way to like hack streaming services for big artists to make more money. So, you know, there's always a push and pull. These arguments aren't always like clean and perfect, but I do think there are some really obvious things you can point to. For example, in movies, Editing has generally favored really quick cuts between a lot of camera angles. I know like a few years ago, there was the uh, scene from the Queen biopic that went viral because the editing was like so over the top, so insane and just like so all over the place that people couldn't believe it was real and that it won an award for said editing. It really feels like your average movie now moves much faster and contains a lot of these like quick cuts and weird edits to try and hold the viewer's attention. Even once again, as the lengths of blockbuster movies has basically ballooned, you know, like it's really hard to find just like a lightweight 
you know, easy watch that's like 90 minutes anymore because the stuff that makes a bunch of money at the movie theaters is like two hours plus. And yet when you sit down to watch it, it's like they can't focus on one scene for more than one second at a time. This is such a stark contrast to like if you go back and look at great films from the 60s and 70s where incredibly long shots with no cuts were the norm. Like looking at classics from directors like Ozu or Scorsese, you can see that there's these super long scenes. And personally, that's something that's a technique that I've always loved in film. I think it's such a great way to establish a scene and also to build tension. I think Scorsese does this incredibly well where where like he'll do these long tracking shots of people moving through buildings or environments and it kind of just builds this invisible tension. Like even if it's not actually leading up to anything, you start to feel like, oh man, what's going to happen? It's just like a really beautiful technique. Ozu kind of does this in the reverse where his movies are generally like really placid and slow moving, even though they contain high dramatic stakes. And a lot of times he uses these like, you know, long shots without cuts to just establish an environment or a setting. And he does that really, really masterfully. I think that the analog to this in video games is how does a video game get going? What kind of introduction does it have? And does it include the now dreaded slow start? Okay, so a slow start. Now that's a phrase and an idea that we've talked about quite a bit on this show because there are two sides to this coin. On the one hand, there are quite a few video games that really take a long time to get going. And so defenders of these games will always be online saying stuff like, oh, well, you know, after the first 10 hours, it gets really, really good. And we've talked about that on this show, like how absurd it is to expect someone to invest like 10 hours into something that is uninteresting at best and actually like boring at worst before it rewards them. Like that's just not good. That's not good design. But on the other hand, I mean, I think that there are games that get unfairly chastised or hated or whatever because they do take their time in establishing the world and establishing the story because they want to do something bigger with it later. And the issue here is that a lot of gamers won't even give something like that a chance because they don't think it's worth it. They get bored. They want the same stimulation that they would get from a game that they consider quote unquote good. This is something that bugs the shit out of me for a number of reasons. Number one is that I think a lot of these games are some of the best experiences you can have in video games. Like I'm thinking specifically of games like Days Gone. I'm thinking of Near Replicant. I'm thinking of Prey. I mean, those are three of my favorite games ever. Games that a lot of people say have a slow start or just take way too long to get going. And yet I think they're amazing. To me, what is a good start in a game is an intro that kind of establishes the world, that shows you what you're going to be doing, and just kind of gets you into the action relatively quickly. 
And I would say that despite a lot of people's criticisms of all three of those games, I think they all have very good introductions. They all establish the world and the tone of the game really, really well. And they more or less just kind of throw you into the action. All of those games open with some kind of set piece, but I mean, I don't know exactly, but I would say if it's more than 10 minutes before you're just into the action and generally doing what you're going to be doing while playing the game, I would be legitimately shocked. In terms of structure, what unites all three of those games to me is that they have the same ethos, which is like I said, they establish the world, they show you what that's gonna be like, they show you what the gameplay is gonna be like, and then they downshift and they let the game just kind of creep along at a slow pace. They let you get into the world to see what's up, and after a few hours of that, then they decide to flip everything on its head and to raise the stakes quite dramatically. What works for me about all of these introductions is that I like these worlds. I like the tone and style that these games are showing me. And I also like the gameplay. They're showing me the stuff that I think is cool. And, you know, it's going to entice me to invest a few more hours in the game before I get into really like the meat of the game. And each of those games has a very big, I don't know if twist is the right word, but I'm just going to use it. Each one has a very big twist that I think really justifies the player staying in that world and sticking with that game. Like, Prey's story just completely goes off the rails and plunges you deeper and deeper into its kind of outer space hell world. Days Gone just keeps upping the ante of the amount of enemies that you'll have to face at once until you're literally battling entire hordes of zombies. It's still so fucking cool and I still have never seen it done in another game. There really needs to be a Days Gone episode like ASAP. And of course, Near Replicant. Well, you can go listen to that episode if you want to know about Near Replicant. The point is that all of these games take their time to get going. And all of these games have been pretty heavily criticized by players for doing that. Now, this begs a question. What, then, do gamers actually want? And I'll drop a big fat disclaimer here that I don't fucking know. I don't know what anybody wants. If I did, my music would be a lot more popular, okay? I've got no fucking idea. But I will say, as someone who has at least played the intro of some of the biggest, most acclaimed blockbuster video games of the last few years, I think I have an idea. I think that generally what gamers want out of a game in order for them to say it has a good intro or a great start or whatever is that they want a lot of structured spectacle. They want big set pieces that blow them away. They want to see everything the game has got in the intro. Now, here's the thing. I'm not against that. I've said many times that I think a game that manages to give the player a good vertical slice in its introduction probably has a pretty great introduction. And you know, here the term vertical slice refers to a section of the game that shows you basically everything that you're going to 
see throughout the game, but in miniature. I like it when a game does that because yeah, it gets your attention. It draws you in. Even if you only get a glimpse at something that you'll get to do later, that glimpse is really exciting. However, I think gamers have become so addicted to this because of the shortening attention spans and because of the change in the way that we consume media. It's like people want to boot up a game and in the first 20 minutes see everything. They want to have everything spoon fed to them and they don't care if they get to play it or not. That's another thing that's a big sticking point for me that doesn't seem to bother a lot of other people, which is that if the intro is all just like half gameplay, half cutscenes, slurry, mixed up, weird garbage, I'm not fucking into it all. It's like either show me a cutscene or let me play. Preferably it's like short to no cutscene and just let me fucking play the game. But it seems like that's more of a niche or unpopular opinion. It seems like most people would rather see the intro of like Spider-Man or God of War or Star Wars Dark Souls where it's, you know, basically a half playable cutscene that is just supposed to be a big quote unquote blockbuster type thrill ride, but it's actually just kind of boring and bad and dumb to me. And it's really distancing. Like I find that shit so massively fucking corny that I just can't get into the game. And like, honestly, for me, it took a lot of mental fortitude to like tune out the intro to get myself to play more of Star Wars Dark Souls. But Star Wars Dark Souls was great. I actually can't remember the name of it. This isn't me doing a joke. Um, let me know. Let me know if you remember the name of it. I guess the point is this. There's two ways you can approach the start of a game as a player. Number one is feeling like you need the game to show you its value immediately and that you don't have any time to put into it. Or approaching it as a work of art that you're curious about that you want to try and get into. Now, the thing here is that it doesn't matter whether or not you get into a game, quote unquote, like you can like or not like whatever you want. You might play an hour of game and not get into it and come back to it years later and it's your favorite game. Like none of this really matters. But what bugs me is when people approach something they fill around with it a little bit and then they spout off all these criticisms like, oh, you know, it sucked. It had a bad intro, slow start. I didn't bother playing the rest of it. I bounced off of it, which is like the favorite phrase of every fucking comment section ever. Like, what are you glue? What? What? I don't get it. Stop saying that. I bounced off of it. God damn. Shut up. I feel like this is just such a modern brain rotted idea that like media owes you something and that like you need to get that out of it or you leave. Now, these are all things I've been railing against for a while. And I swear to God, this episode is going somewhere productive. It's not just old man yells at cloud. Just stick with me, please. But I feel like these are all very modern ideas and I've been railing against them for a while. And it's the reason why I have so many different like rules now about how we do the show. Like number one, I really would rather not talk about the price of games because it gets into this kind of transactional view of art whereby if you didn't get your money's worth, it's not valuable as a piece of art. And as an artist, 
That is beyond fucked, and I refuse to engage in that. Another rule is that I don't think anyone should force themselves to play a certain amount of a game. Now, I feel like a lot of people who've been listening to the show for a long time might think that that's just like an administrative or mechanical thing where it's like, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. And it's not feasible for us to make this show about video games if we force ourselves to complete every video game. But I also think that the listener should abide by that rule as well. Like if a game is really long and you play most of it and you feel like that's enough and you don't need to finish it, like that's okay. It doesn't mean that you didn't experience the game, that you can't have opinions on the game or that like you can't, you know, engage in discourse about it or whatever. It's just that like you engaged with it as much as you wanted to engage with it. One thing that I think is different between movies and video games, and it's one big reason why those comparisons can be sort of problematic, is that Video games are so much longer on average than movies. And so I think it's a lot better to compare video games to TV shows. And if you do that, like you realize just how many long running TV shows there are that you yourself may have like dabbled in or even watched most of. And at some point like jumped off because they just lost your interest. They weren't good anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Like long form works of this length are just kind of different. And like, I guess, you know, To that point, I mean, I spent like 10 minutes of an episode of this show talking about the new girl, and yet I didn't watch the last season of the new girl. I watched the first episode of the last season of the new girl, and I fucking hated it. And then I turned it off. Guess what? I still love the new girl. I think it's a great TV show. I think all the first whatever five, six seasons are fucking fantastic. And I just really, really couldn't do the last season. I don't know. It just sucked a lot um, and was boring and bad. But you know what I mean? It's like you can jump off whenever you want. You can engage with things the way that you want to engage with things. But what I think is important, and it's not just like important for the sake of art. I think it's important for the sake of your mental health and for trying to control the amount of media that we consume and maybe get a handle on all this crazy shit. And like, maybe I'm projecting here. Maybe all of you are listening. And you're like, I don't do any of these things. I'm like perfectly well-balanced and normal, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you're fucking not. I'm going to guess that you're like me feeling like you're just like constantly taking in too much information and like on this constant treadmill of like opinions, information and quote unquote entertainment that like some days you just like desperately want to get off of because it's all too much. I'm going to assume you're feeling that way as well. And I think that one thing that really helps with that is just engaging with things in the way that you want to engage with them. It's all about trying to like slow your brain down and just be comfortable doing whatever you're doing. And to that end, I feel like engaging with things that could be described as slow moving having a slow start or being a slow burn is actually great. Like, I feel quite strongly that if you are feeling the same way that I described, you should be seeking things out that move at a slower pace, that feel more low key, that demand your attention, but are also very, very immersive. Like they know how to 
hold that attention, to keep you submerged into the world using various techniques, and just to keep you within that one task. And that's actually sometimes harder to find than it seems. So today I'm gonna to help you out with a couple recommendations. A couple games I played recently that I feel like qualify as slow burns or slow moving video games that I think are also fucking fantastic. They're both throwbacks, they're both a little old school, but they're also both decidedly modern and to reiterate, fucking fantastic. So I hope you guys like these recommendations. I hope you guys will check out these games and enjoy them because I've had a lot of fun playing these games. And if I'm being honest, I mean, part of the reason this episode is late is that I was just playing these fucking games, dog. So anyway, let's get into it. The first game I want to talk about today is Lunacid by the developer Kira. Now, longtime listeners of the show will know that Kira made one of my favorite games ever, Lost in Vivo. Lost in Vivo was basically a sleeper hit for me personally, where I played it and I liked it. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, wait, I didn't like that. I fucking loved that. And so I replayed the game a couple times and yeah, Lost in Vivo is just an exemplary first person exploration based horror game. I think the sound design, the scares, the world design, the narrative, everything is a 10 out of 10. Um, the fact that it has that kind of lo-fi PS1 type graphics, but it's done in a super beautiful and aesthetically pleasing way, once again, makes it an exemplar in the genre. I think it's just a fantastic game. And since then, I've been looking forward to the next major release from this dev, and now it is finally here. Lunacid is a game that this dev has been working on for a very long time. It was teased for a few years, then it was in early access for a few years. I bought it in early access to show some love, but as is my policy, I don't really play early access games. Uh, I don't really get it because I think it's probably better to wait till like the games are done. <laughs> but regardless, this, this game was on my radar. I was really excited for it. And last Halloween, it finally left early access and got its full 1.0 release. Now at this time, I was really hyped up to play this game, but I was really, really busy. So I was like, you know, I'll finish all the stuff I need to do, the Halloween special, some personal stuff, whatever, and then finally get around to playing this game. So a few weeks after Halloween, I finally sat down with the game, booted up and started playing it. And let me tell you this, I did not get it. And honestly, this is kind of the catalyst for this whole episode because me not getting this game and then later getting it is kind of so wrapped into me realizing that my media consumption habits and like social media consumption habits have just gotten so weird and out of control and just like not good for my brain. So in some ways I kind of like owe this game a lot. And, and again, I owe this dev a giant thank you for like getting me to realize that I was kind of in a fucked up place and I needed to do something about it. Because here's the deal. Lunacid is a game that is very old school. It is purposefully done in the style of Kingsfield, 
Now, if you don't know Kingsfield, that is the From Software series that essentially preceded Dark Souls. Before there was the Dark Souls or the Soulsborne series, there was Kingsfield. And these were first person dungeon crawling RPG games. They were kind of like those first person wizardry inspired Japanese dungeon crawler games, except this was fully in 3D and with real time combat. So there was an action game component to it, as well as a deep set of RPG statistics. The thing about Kingsfield though, is that these games were incredibly slow moving and incredibly punishing. I mean, yes, technically the combat is real time, but it's so slow and weighty and heavy that it honestly still kind of feels turn-based. Combine that with how important the stats and numbers component of the game is, and you get a game that's more or less like an action game for RPG heads. Another thing about Kingsfield is that these games were brutally punishing and like incredibly unfair. Like if you think the tricks and traps and cruel pranks of the Dark Souls games are bad, try Kingsfield. It's like a thousand fucking times worse. So that's all to say the Kingsfield games are awesome, but they're really hard to approach now, especially if you are a modern player who doesn't have any experience with this genre or style. These games are brutal. Now that said, these games also, as many older FromSoft games did, had fantastic aesthetics, not just in the dark fantasy world and setting, but also in the menus, fonts, enemy designs, character designs, like all these little details were just so perfectly executed to give you that great kind of janky, kind of awesome PS1 feel. We've talked about it in this show, but like now that that whole PS1 look, feel, and style has just become like ubiquitous in the indie sphere, it's interesting to go back and find the real life PS1 games that actually like had that look, feel, and vibe. And it's not always what you expect. Like a lot of the most popular games on the system don't really have that vibe exactly, or at least like the vibe that is now popular in the modern day. And it's sometimes unexpected stuff. Like I think Parasite Eve nails it perfectly, but I also think any of the From Software stuff on the PS1 nails it perfectly. And Kingsfield is no exception. So that is to say a modern dev going back and doing an update on the Kingsfield style is really exciting to me. Like as someone who's played enough Kingsfield to get it, but isn't a huge head and is definitely not gonna go back and play these games because like, oh boy, life is short. Um, I was really, really excited about this project, Lunacid, and I was really excited to see what it was gonna be. What I didn't expect was just how doggedly old school this game is. And that's the thing about Lunacid. It is old school. I mean, this game boots up and they don't tell you shit. They don't tell you how to do anything. They don't tell you how like anything works. Even with an included manual and a couple of really short tutorials, chances are 
you are not going to get how this game works until you've played it for quite a bit of time. It doesn't help that the opening area contains, I don't know if it's right to call this a troll, but it is like a massive piece of misdirection where you can go and explore an area that is entirely of no consequence for a very long time and mess around with the game's control and combat system before realizing that the actual first dungeon that you need to clear to move on in the game is right by where the game starts you, but you have to go to a certain vendor and buy a key in order to get through that door. It's just one of those little things that's like, oh my fucking God. Like, if you spent a lot of time trying to figure this out and then figured out that that was a solution, you might be feeling kind of like a dumbass. I mean, I know I did. So once again, sorry if I'm projecting. What amazed me about this experience in this game, though, was that it didn't make me mad. It didn't piss me off. It didn't make me want to stop playing the game. In fact, it drew me in even further because here's what happened. I started playing the game. I thoroughly explored everywhere I could find in that opening segment. I experimented with the combat and magic system. And by the time I was done, I had actually figured out how the game's mechanics worked. Then I got to move on and do the first dungeon. And somehow the world opening up after I had already dumped a couple hours into it and like literally done nothing was like the most exciting experience I've had in video games in a very long time. And it made me just dive into this game and spend like a very long time playing it. Now, this is all important to getting to the appeal of this game and why I think it's like profound. But let's pump the brakes and go back and talk briefly about what this game is. So like I mentioned, Lunacid is basically an update to a classic Kingsfield style game. That is to say, it's a first-person dungeon crawler. It vaguely has the same vibe in terms of its mechanics and combat as a Dark Souls game. And I'm just going to use Dark Souls as the reference because I think a lot more people have played those games than they have the Kingsfield games. But what's interesting about Lunacid is that a lot of the mechanics that you might find in Dark Souls are here, but just massively, massively simplified. So like, yes, there is a stats system, but it's a lot less stats than you might find in a Soulsborne game. And the interaction between the stats are also quite a bit simpler. The game is also very, very generous with leveling. It is not very hard to level in this game to the point where I'm not even sure if you'll ever need to grind unless you want to like basically change the trajectory of your leveling. That's something that I really liked and also that made the game feel a lot less punishing was that like you didn't need to dump a bunch of time into it in order to try different builds and experiment with the game. And that's something that I'm like always going to pull for in a FromSoft or a FromSoft inspired game. Like that just makes it way more fun. Another big piece of simplification here is that you only have one hand rather than two like you would in a Soulsborne game. This means that you're generally not using shields and simply choosing a weapon that you like. This works really well because they've mapped magic to the shoulder buttons here. You basically have uh, 
two magic spells that you can equip and they end up getting mapped to the shoulder buttons. The magic system is also really simple in this game. You simply find rings. The rings allow you to use magic spells and, you know, the effectiveness of those spells is pretty much just tied to your base magic stats in the game. So yeah, once again, if you compare this to any Soulsborne game, it's a lot, a lot simpler. But it works really well in this game for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's very fun and breezy. It makes this game feel more modern and it definitely makes it more fun to play. Number two is that the game overall in terms of loadout and combat feels a lot more like Demon Souls than Dark Souls, which is to say that damage types are incredibly important. A lot of times if you come up against an enemy that you can't kill, it's because only a certain damage type will hurt them. This also includes magic. It's not just different types of weapons, which means that you are going to need more of a versatile character build and a robust selection of weapons to choose from while you're moving through the game's world. Otherwise, you're going to be constantly coming up against enemies that you can't kill. This is another thing that sounds like it could be annoying, but the game helpfully balances it out by not including armor. You literally just have weapons and rings, and that's it. You still have your base stats, you have a bunch of items you can manage, but it's not as detailed and intense as anything that's come out of FromSoft. The same could be said of the combat here. Now, the combat will probably take you a minute if you haven't played any of the Kingsfield games or if you're just not used to this type of game, because once again, it is very slow moving it's very methodical. At times, it can feel almost more turn-based than live action. But Lunacid helpfully upgrades a lot of the elements of this type of combat, like having good controls, having a good basic game feel, and they've ended up making something that is really fun and really satisfying to play. Once again, I think the reason that it works really well in this game is that it's mostly tactics based. You always have lots of options for different weapons, items, and tricks to try in order to best your enemies. You will definitely start this game off cheesing every enemy you come across, but eventually you also just have a strong enough loadout to take on even the most daunting of enemies in the game. So listener, you might be thinking, okay, what is so old school and what is so hardcore about this game if everything has been updated and modernized and blah, blah, blah. Well, it's like I said earlier, this game doesn't tell you shit. They don't tell you anything. I mean, you will be lost. You will be confused. You will not know where to go at all times. I mean, you can finish a major task, like you can finish a big side quest and turn it in and pay it off and nothing will happen. Like this game is so subtle and so low key that like nothing ever happens. You can beat a boss and like nothing happens. You can complete a dungeon and nothing happens. Now, once again, initially, 
My brain did not like this. I did not like being lost. I did not like not being rewarded. I did not like missing out on my little dopamine hits that I'm supposed to get every time the big text flashes on the screen and the sound effect plays. I did not like it. However, something about this game just kept calling to me. And even though it took me a couple of months, I finally sat down and dove all the way in. And holy shit, once I did, this game absolutely blew my fucking mind. I think the most brilliant thing about this game is the level design, world design, and how the exploration plays into that. Lunacid is a deceptively gigantic game. Like, I think they purposefully start you off in some of the smaller sized areas and they kind of purposefully start you in a place where there aren't a lot of, you know, looping connections and really, um, you know, detailed level design. Because once again, this is a slow burn. It takes its time getting going. But once it does, oh my God, it is crazy. I've said before that I think the forest in Bloodborne is like maybe the best designed level or area in any video game ever. And while I'm not sure anything here tops that, I will say that this is an entire game with that same design style and ethos. Just about all the areas in Lunacid are connected, and there are tons of loopbacks, shortcuts, hidden ladders, etc. to move you from one area to another. Now obviously, as one of its many modernizations, the game does have fast travel, but it's also incredible just how beautifully interconnected all the areas in this game are. If you are a fan of Soulsborne games or FromSoft games or whatever you want to call them, you need to play this game just to experience that. It is actually fucking incredible. I think the way it mixes with the game's visual style, which is very, very surreal, psychedelic and trippy, also makes this like just such a joy to play because you're already kind of in this weird heightened state where you're expecting weird and psychedelic stuff to happen. So when you do find a door that takes you from what you thought was like the furthest reaches of the world all the way back to the start, it's a pretty shocking and incredible feeling. I think this also dovetails nicely with the game's approach to character building and damage types. For example, you might find one area that contains a bunch of enemies that you just simply can't kill, and you're probably going to be annoyed and or frustrated. However, the solution here is, as always, just to keep at it. Keep exploring, keep looking for new items and abilities until you find the thing you need to go back and finish the task. My favorite example of this was the first time I got to the castle. So the castle is like this huge, imposing structure and initially you can't enter it but you can go to a crypt through a side entrance when you go into the crypt you find that suddenly you are in a vampire horror video game for sure 100 percent, which is kind of shocking in and of itself i mean everything's dark red and black a crypt full of vampires like holy shit 
But the other thing is that the vampires are really fucking tough and they're really hard to kill. Initially, I was like, holy shit, am I just way under leveled? Am I missing something? And the answer was yes, because when I left and looked around in some other places, did some more exploration, I found that there is a vampire hunting sword that makes killing vampires way the fuck easier. There are also a number of spells that will help you get through that area a lot easier. But once again, you need to be just fully exploring. You need to be moving around the world. You need to be looking everywhere. I mean, for hidden entrances, hidden switches. You need to be absolutely combing this world to find new things that will help you get to the next place in the world. This game also has the wonderful level design of, you know, any of the Dark Souls games where you get to move through different areas that all have a completely different vibe, style, and layout. Every new area you find is just exciting visually, right? You're like, oh, now I'm in a enchanted forest. Now I'm in like a desert. Now I'm in a sea of blood. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the game's whole psychedelic approach to visuals and design is absolutely incredible. It makes the game so fun and cool to experience. And yeah, I just had a great time exploring this world. Now, those are all the nuts and bolts things I liked about Lunacid, but what really, really got under my skin and what really, really made me feel like this game is important to me is the pace. Like I said, this game doesn't tell you anything. So all of those reveals, all of those discoveries are yours that you made in your own way, in your own time. It's virtually impossible to look up anything about this game anyway. It's not a big enough game to have like hella walkthroughs or anything like that. So you really just need to play the game and discover these things for yourself. Now, this is also how it was playing the FromSoft games or any game vaguely in that style back in the 90s. However, those games were so punishing and so overly difficult. They frequently had like weird janky save systems. They would be constantly trying to kill you and make you lose progress. And so it made the experience of kind of exploring the world a lot more tense and a lot less fun than something like Lunacid. Lunacid has enough modern innovations and like quality of life improvements baked into the game that this type of exploration is actually really, really fun to do. You can let yourself fully sink into the world and you can kind of zone out a little bit and just exist in the world. When you hit a roadblock, it's not a huge deal to just go back and find another area to explore. In a way, you could say it's kind of like an old school FromSoft game with the mindset of a modern FromSoft game. Because if you'll remember, this was basically exactly what we said was so great about Elden Ring, right? Like Elden Ring had this whole philosophy of putting up roadblocks, but then giving you a lot of different places to explore and a lot of different alternatives to try. Like you never needed to give up an Elden Ring regardless of how challenging the game got. Lunacid has that same vibe and that same style. But once again, it's also in a game that is way, way, way more weird, obtuse, 
confusing and purposefully player unfriendly. And somehow the combination of those two sides makes like the perfect, slow moving, languid, slow burn video game experience. And yeah, I absolutely love it. And of course, this isn't even getting like deep into the setting or lore stuff that of course is present in the game. I just think this game is such a great experience, even just on the surface, like getting to explore this beautifully destroyed dark fantasy world and interact with really fun and easy to use RPG or action RPG mechanics in a setting that is still challenging and punishing is fucking great. The only tip you really need to know is uh, remember to save because this is old school FromSoft, not new school FromSoft, where you die and revive at a bonfire. This game's got game over screens. So yeah, that was not chill, but the rest of it, very, very chill. Speaking of chill, the next game I want to talk about is one that, you know, to be honest, I'm not really sure if most people would consider it to be a slow burn, but I definitely would. And in getting to this part of this episode, I realized that I haven't actually defined what a slow burn is. I've just been assuming that you guys know what it is and what I'm talking about. And I guess I'll just sum it up quickly, because if you didn't, you probably already Googled it, right? But slow burn is a term and it's usually used um, in reference to films, but you could really apply it to any type of media, but it's a term used to refer to a media work that takes its time to get going and that has a very slow and gradual ramp up to something. It could be the climax of the story, it could be a big twist, but generally speaking, works that you know could be considered slow burns are slow moving. They take their time to get going. They're very deliberate in terms of plotting and pacing. And what makes this style work is the payoff that you ultimately get from it. The best works in this style have some sort of twist or payoff or something that simply couldn't have been achieved had the pacing been quicker and punchier. I think like a great example of this in video games, in my opinion, is Dark Souls 2. I know this is controversial because a lot of people hate this game, but fuck it, whatever. What I love so much about Dark Souls 2 is that it doesn't just take its time in the story, it also plays upon the character's prior experience with Dark Souls and their assumptions about the game and the game world to deliver a really massive gut punch of a twist. I mean, the game even takes hours and hours to introduce that there might be something weird going on. So when that twist finally hits, it lands incredibly well. I think that Dark Souls 2 also does this mechanically. Like initially, it's really wild and confusing stats system is daunting and at times can even feel broken. But once you actually get your brain around it, you realize that there's actually a ton of possibility. And so by the time you get into the late game where those story beats are being paid off, you're also experiencing a lot of payoff from the mechanics, which, you know, you should have figured out how to game to the point where you can do things that you 
simply couldn't do in the original Dark Souls. It's really just from all fronts a great slow burn. I also think that sometimes this can just be a convention within certain genres. Like certain genres just really lend themselves to this style of pacing. Like RPGs, for example, you know, they generally have these slow moving starts. They like to set up the world and then turn everything upside down. That's kind of just like a classic move within that genre. So we sort of go in expecting that when we start up one of those games. Another genre, albeit one that's like much, much, much smaller and might even be considered a micro genre that lends itself to this style is the side scrolling adventure game. And this is a style that has become very well defined in the modern day, even if there aren't a ton of games within this genre. But I'm thinking specifically of stuff like Night in the Woods or Oxenfree. These are games that generally would be considered adventure games in the old school sense, like point and click PC game type adventure games. However, they have a unique side scrolling perspective and very, very normal like platformer controls to them. Like Night in the Woods, they might even have a little tiny bit of like platformer gaming within the adventure game style. I think it's a very cool and unique genre. I've been a really big fan of a lot of the biggest games in this genre, like Night in the Woods and Oxenfree. Now, the funny thing about my pick for today is that if you know about this genre, you know that there are a lot of more horror-centric titles within this genre that I haven't played and haven't covered for the show. Like, I mean, Oxenfree 2 is probably at the top of the list, and for some reason I still haven't played that game. Uh, couldn't tell you why. I will. I will, though. But there is one that caught my eye and I decided to check out, mostly just on the strength of the art style and some recommendations I got from friends. Uh, and I don't regret checking it out because I think it's a great game and I also think it fits very well into the theme of this episode. And that game is A Space for the Unbound. Now, what you need to know about A Space for the Unbound is that it's very much within that kind of side-scrolling adventure game genre in more ways than one. Yes, at a nuts and bolts level, it is one of these games, but it also incorporates some stuff from those other games that I think is very central to the genre. The big one being that the whole game has a slice of life feel. Now, slice of life is a term that mostly comes from anime and refers to, you know, works of art that spend a lot of time showcasing the characters' day-to-day -day lives and a focus on the mundane within those characters' lives. However, it's also just a term that can be used in any form of media now, and it's become something that we're seeing more and more of in video games. Specifically within this style, the whole slice of life thing seems to be a very important component of it. For example, in Night in the Woods, there is this larger, you know, more serious story going on in the background, but frequently the foreground is taken up by showing the characters, you know, doing things in their day-to-day -day lives, like going to band practice or just hanging out outside of convenience stores or, you know, just playing with firecrackers or whatever. This is a cool idea because it really endears us to the character and immerses us in the world before, you know, actually doing something 
with that immersion. I think this is a really effective tactic within storytelling. It's something that I think really, really works if you're trying to get the player invested in the world and the characters. And I also think it's a smart thing to do in a game that could be seen as like a modern adventure game or like a modernization of the classic point and click adventure game style. To me, A Space for the Unbound is a slow burn because it focuses so much on this slice of life element. Like Night in the Woods, A Space for the Unbound has a big, massive, kind of cosmic horror tale going on in the background. However, the foreground is often just people living their lives. And like any classic 16-bit inspired game, A Space for the Unbound loves to rush you along and tell you that the stakes are high, but also give you the opportunity to talk to every person in town and pet every cat that you come across. Yes, there is like a cat obsession in this game that I love and I very, very much appreciate. But let's back up. What is this game? So A Space for the Unbound is, uh, like I said, a side-scrolling, modern adventure game with a lot of throwback elements. For starters, it's set in the 90s in Indonesia, and it also cops an era-appropriate visual style. The game has this kind of 16-bit look to it, but with some really, really smart and impressive animations and visual effects added into it. This is like one of those modern games that's clearly modern, but also meant to look like it could have been on the Super Nintendo or possibly a 2D game on the PS1. I have to say they absolutely nail this art style. And once again, it merges with the setting to create a really nice vibe for the whole game and story. Like I mentioned, I'm not sure if everyone would consider A Space for the Unbound to be exactly a slow burn tale, simply because the game's main story is insane and the stakes are very, very high. But I also feel like the game's pacing frequently stays slow, simply because you can choose when to move on. The game lets you stop and investigate things and talk to everyone, and this world and town are very, very detailed. Detail seems to be a really big sticking point for the makers of this game. The director of this game explicitly stated that he wanted the game to feel true to life in certain ways and to portray what it was like to live in Indonesia in the 90s and to grow up at that time. And I think they've done a fantastic job conveying that here. You really get a window into these characters and even the most inconsequential side character has unique dialogue or something to share that will really like give you a feeling of being there or give you this little window into what it would have been like to be there. I think this all works really well because there is also another side to this game. It's not just that. Like I mentioned, there's this huge like world-ending cosmic horror story that slowly unfolds in the background of this game. And it is really cool and fascinating. It's weird, psychedelic, and mind-bending. In some ways, it reminds me of something that you might see in like a Duplass Brothers movie or something from Michel Gondry. Like it's really, weird, cool stuff. 
And yet at the same time, you're also just like kind of a dumb teenager in high school who gets to like run around and do errands for people and just kind of live in this small town in Indonesia for a little bit. It's such a cool contrast. Like I said, the game's visuals and presentation are also top-notch, and the writing is great, so everything comes together beautifully to give you this neat little storytelling experience. In a lot of ways, I could compare this game to Decarnation, even though it has a totally different tone and style. I mean, maybe not totally different, both games are kind of psychedelic and deal with different worlds and different realities. But one trick both of them use is kind of pumping the brakes on the action and letting you just freely wander around an area and talk to random people. I really love it when games do this, not just as a pacing device to break up the action, but also as a way to immerse you in the world. There's no better way to let people get a feel for this world than just kind of casually chatting with people and getting small details about what it's like to live there. Especially if it's something that's like a really out there, crazy fantasy world like in Decarnation. I mean, that's just like super fun. But even in a more grounded, realistic world like A Space for the Unbound, it actually can be very emotionally affecting. It lets you know what's going on in these characters' lives, and it gives you a better window into the meaning and underlying context of the story. Personally, I enjoy this so much that I really loved a game that basically just zeroed in on this aspect fully, which is Friends of Ringo Ishikawa. Friends of Ringo Ishikawa is a game that I mentioned on here previously a couple times, but man, I really love this game. It's one of the best games I've played in my life, and I think it's mostly because it really plays on players' expectations to do something really weird, different, and unexpected. Visually, it seems to be like an homage to the Kunio-kun games, which is a Japanese series that gave us River City Ransom. However, the gameplay here was pure slice of life, to the point where you could almost entirely avoid the combat element of the game, which in something like River City Ransom was the centerpiece of it. It was the whole point of playing the game. Here was a game that looked and sometimes played like River City Ransom that also let you just like go to school and then get a part-time job at a video store if you wanted to. It was a delinquent game where you didn't even have to be a delinquent if you didn't want to. I think in that game, it works so beautifully. And one of the reasons why is because the game's narrative is incredibly open-ended. Like, there isn't really much of a frame story that everything is building towards. Like, technically there is, but it's really vague and it's really indeterminate. It's really meant to just give you a little snapshot of a character's life without defining what that character is or who they are so that you, the player, can do that as you're playing. I love it, and I think it's totally brilliant. That said, I think A Space for the Unbound is actually an interesting evolution of this style that actually takes it even further. Here, the narrative is much more concrete and it's a much larger part of the game, to the point where there are even cutscenes in the game, although once again, they're beautifully presented using big 2D pixel art portraits and really beautiful animations. 
Here, you don't really have much choice in the narrative or not any more choice than you would in your standard adventure game or RPG. However, as I mentioned earlier, the game does let you choose how deeply you want to entrench yourself in the community of this game. Like, if you want to, you can talk to every person, you can do every side quest, and as you do them, you get a better understanding of the town that the game is set in and its characters. You're always moving along the same narrative arc, and you can't really change ultimately where the story is going or what is going to happen. However, you can choose how you experience the story and how your character acts. You essentially get to choose what kind of person your main character is by choosing how much they'd like to interact and involve themselves with the people around them, even as the story kind of moves along the same arc without your input. This works for me also because the story in this game is great. It's very heavy, it's very deep, there's a lot of layers both in the sci-fi way like layers of reality and layers of meaning, but also in an emotional way as the characters go through really heavy things and deal with really heavy stuff, but ultimately it's a very beautifully told tale. It's a really great story and it does end up powering the entire game. What I really loved about this game though was the way that it managed to contrast this like very dramatic, heavy, high stakes story with just really lightweight, fun, easygoing, slice of life stuff. Like I said, you could power through this game really fast and try and get to the end, but I think the fun is in just kind of existing in the world and taking your time and chilling out. Like something like Night in the Woods or Friends of Ringo Ishikawa, it's much better if you just explore all the side quests and see what everyone in town is up to, even like the sort of crazy, scary, off-putting people. Because sometimes within the context of a narrative like this in the story, those are some of the most interesting people and experiences that you'll have. It's almost like the game is trying to tell you something maybe about real life a little bit too. I think I really appreciate both of these games and the experiences I had with them because so much of the time as all of our brains get more and more warped by the internet, it can feel like even the stuff that we engage in to get away from that has a lot of the same qualities. Like if we want to just sit down and play a video game to escape from everything that's going on online, a lot of times you'll still feel like it's this overcomplicated, overstimulating mess that just doesn't let you sink into the experience and just chill the fuck out. With both of these games, I felt like I was able to fully do that and it was a really fun and satisfying and gratifying and eye-opening experience. It was like, you know, you, when you go outside and just do something nice and you're like, damn, I got to do this more often. That's how I felt playing both these games. I was like, yeah, I got to just chill the fuck out and play stuff that feels like this more often. That actually gives you that kind of nice, slow moving experience. I think that's the way for 2024. I think that's what the fuck is up. And on that note, I guess it's time to do the, uh, Yearly back from break show update and uh, tell you what's going on. Okay, so it's 2024. It's, you know, I was thinking about it. It's like basically season four of this show. I don't really do that much. Like I actually do, you know, season markers and stuff. But I feel like 
2019 and 2020 were kind of one thing. And then, you know, each year since I've taken a little break and then come back. Uh, so I think this year I've been trying to think about what I can change uh, to make the show better, to make the show more interesting, and also to keep the show kind of fun and exciting for me as the producer of the show. And so what I decided is this, you know, 2022, 2023 were weird, tried a lot of weird stuff, some stuff I like, some stuff I don't like, um, it's just been all over the place. What I think I want to do for this year is I want to focus on two things that I really like doing. Number one is episodes like this, where it's just kind of an essay style where I tell you about some games I played and I wrap it into some themes or I just pick, you know, an important theme that I'm interested in and talk about that because there's a fair amount of that stuff that I still want to do and I have lots of ideas for that. It's just sometimes I don't really like just sit down and do it because I'm busy or I have other stuff to work on with the show or blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't really know, you know? So I want to focus on doing that and planning, you know, interesting, thoughtful essay content for you guys. And I want to do that once a month. And then I want to also do just a really loose conversation episode once a month as well. And I think that's kind of what happened for most of last year where it would be like, an essay a month and then like a conversation a month. And it was like a bi-weekly show. So you got two episodes per month. So not a huge change, but I do. One thing I want to do this year is I do want to have a little bit looser of a schedule. I don't want to feel as hemmed in by the schedule. And so what I think I'm going to commit to for this year is one essay per month is absolutely going to happen. Like one episode per month that's just like essay type content. And then a second episode will come out that will be a conversation if I get it done. <laughs> and if I don't get it done, then it's not going to come out. So I, I mean, honestly, this made a lot of sense in my head. And now that I'm saying out loud, it I feel like it makes no fucking sense at all. But Essentially, what I'm saying is that I'm going to try to stick to the bi-weekly schedule, but if scheduling things get in the way, if people's lives get in the way, if we just can't get around to it, then there's only going to be one episode a month. And like, I don't really foresee that happening too much, but I also know that like last year when I was like putting out albums, that was like August, September it was really hard to schedule stuff. It was really hard to get things done. And it would have just been nice to have the freedom to be like, well, I'm just going to do this one episode this month and then just like kind of not do another one instead of like scrambling to finish something. And I think that's going to help me. And it's also going to help the episodes. Cause I think generally, you know, episodes are better if I don't feel under the gun, if it's really just like, for the fun of it and for the love of it, uh, which is something that I've kind of always struggled with with this show is like that kind of balance of doing stuff for fun and doing stuff because I have to do it. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to improve upon that and make that better. So that's my big pitch. It's basically not much is going to change about the show except that Occasionally, there's only going to be one episode a month and I'm not going to babysit the schedule too much or do announcements or anything like that. I think you'll just kind of know. 
And yeah, so maybe the show becomes a little bit less predictable um, in terms of what's going to come out or when it's going to come out. Because I'm sure there's also going to be months where there'll be like a special episode we have to do. And so there'll just be two conversations that month and no essays. But generally, I mean, that those are the things I want to focus on. I want to focus on the conversation episodes, having like a wider variety of people, more, um, you know, new people, things you haven't heard before just trying to keep it fresh and then like kind of having this, you know, solo essay content that's guaranteed and also just focusing on that and making that of a higher quality. And to me, higher quality means not just like better writing, but it's also like more original music, um, you know, more research put into them, things like that, just more stuff on the production side to, uh, to make them better. And and I think I need to buy a new microphone too. So I don't know. We'll do that at some point as well. But yeah, I guess that's just where my head is at for now. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking of ways to make the show better, make the show more exciting uh, for me as well as for you to keep things rolling, to not just rehash the same shit um, over and over. Because uh, there is going to be a fair amount of like revisiting stuff this year. I feel like there's definitely stuff I have scheduled where it's like revisiting things, but I want it to be with new people or with a fresh perspective or something like that. So the show just like stays exciting and stays engaging. It's crazy to think that this is like going into like the fifth year that I've been doing this show. That's wild. I did not think it would last this long. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of like at this crossroads of like, okay, what do I do? Like what's, what's the move? And I think right now this is the move so I can just kind of work more on stuff and improve the quality and then, you know, find my way towards some you know whatever the next thing is the next evolution is um but yeah i'm definitely going to need time to do that a little more time uh which we all need right everyone's just looking for a little more time so yeah uh if you have any questions i don't know sign up for the patreon and send me a message there uh patreon's not changing patreon's just the same um you know last year i think or maybe it was earlier this year justin started posting video content as well so i'm hoping that there's going to be more of a focus on that i'll get back to doing some of that um yeah just a little more video content for you guys which is always cool and fun um but episodes are still bi-weekly on there nothing's really changing so yeah uh sign up for the patreon okay uh yeah let's end it there take it easy <laughs>